on all the time, wartime. A smooth, bald head, a large white body, no trace of pubic hair, raw, fretted and frayed by that rocky coast, the flesh where the nipples were. A woman drowned in wartime on the Ligurian shore. An Italian shouted, E una femmina! There seemed to be nothing more. A suicide, a resistance girl from La Spezia floated down, a murderee from Genoa. The coast road into the town led me back to Livorno and a British army tea. The war got hold of the women as it got hold of me. Twenty years later, in the offices, the typists tread out the wine, pounding with sharp stiletto heels, working a money mine. It's a milder war, but it is one. It's death by other means, and I'm in the battle with them, the soft recruits in their teens. Well, you can tell from the stiletto heels that that was written in the 50s. Um, well, in England, you could tell, anyway. Uh, so I now come on to a, um, a poem of uh, a, a, a sort of uh, surrealist ambiguity. It's just called The Owls Are Leaving. The owls are leaving town in a strong procession. They stream into the side streets, to the squares. They fill the squares and block the avenues. They move in silence. They are eight feet tall. The owls are leaving town with a sure precision. Their eyes look straight ahead. They do not turn. Their features clothe them in a secret wisdom. No looking back. Each one is three feet broad. The owls are leaving town with no hint of passion. They shuffle forwards. They are calm and good. Their feet expect the texture of the roadway. They never loved us. They are birds that go. Well, that's prophetic and doom-laden, I suppose. Uh, um, now, I think the, the next poem I shall read is, um, again, a little bit elegiac. And it's the sort of poem that people that like People that like it, like it very much, is what I'm trying to say. It's not grammatical, but you'll get my drift. Um, it's called A 14-Year-Old Convalescent Cat in Winter. <coughs> I want him to have another living summer, to lie in the sun and enjoy the douceur de vivre, because the sun, like golden rum in a rummer, is what makes an idle cat uh, too petit per eve. I want him to lie stretched out, contented, reveling in the heat, his fur all dry and warm, an old age pensioner, retired, resented by no one, and happinesses in a bee-like swarm to settle on him, postponed for another season, that last fated, hateful journey to the vet from which there is no return, and age the reason, which must soon come, as I cannot forget. Well, um, 
do so to be, you know, the sweetness of life. Uh, tu petit pays simply means a little bit drunk. I'm sure you know all that. Um, what, um, I don't think there's anything else in that poem that I could possibly hope to make any better or different by explaining. Um, so I, I now come on to a poem written in Australia. And it was written at the Adelaide Festival. I went along to the Adelaide Zoo to look for a wombat. And at the Adelaide Zoo, it's very well laid out and small and neat and beautiful. And I came back and I wrote a poem about what I saw there. It describes it exactly. Uh, however, when I'd written it, I found that I seem to have written a, a poem comparing the state of the third world countries with, with the democracies of the kind that I live in. And so it's got a political resonance, which it wasn't really intended to have, but I think it has got it. The Animals in the Adelaide Zoo. The animals in the Adelaide Zoo are very comfortable. It's a small zoo, but very well organized. The elephant stands in a small space, but seems happy. The black-backed jackals run, hunting, hunting, hunting. A slow loris moves quiet in nocturnal liking. The black panther is a melanistic form of the spotted leopard. The animals in the Adelaide Zoo are not rhetorical. The zebras are not torn apart by lions. The hippopotamus is in happy water. The giraffe's sex organs are as high as your head. The jaguars and ocelots attack nothing. Everything is as it should be in the Adelaide Zoo. The animals in the Adelaide Zoo are already in heaven. Their children are born lucky. Nobody hates them. They are surrounded by love and regular food. Their lives are without drama. They show no fear. Eviscerated on a path lies a tiny indigenous mouse. In their cages, they show no concern in the Adelaide Zoo. <coughs> the next poem is uh, <coughs> a rhyming poem again. I'm always quite keen on them. And this is called Victorian. It's an attempt to do the whole of Victoria's reign in uh, 12 lines. And it has these little sort of pointillist, expressionist, impressionist, I should say, uh, details taken out of the history of the time that most people know about, things like curling papers and so on. And one thing in it, though, is important, I think. It, it mentions pints of port and porter. Well, porter is the drink that's like Guinness, and in fact was called so because the porters used to drink it. And um, port, people used to drink port in large quantities. In The Warden, Trollope's first novel, I think it is, um, there's an old clergyman who goes up to London to see the ecclesiastical commissioners. He goes into a pub to have lunch. He has two chops and a pint of port. Now, that's incredible to me, because I mean, if I had a pint of port which is about that high, I should go to sleep or at least not be very responsible for my actions. But apparently he was quite capable of going to the ecclesiastical commissioners and talking about his almshouses and the old pensioners. 
without showing it. So uh, this is just called Victorian. Miss with the vapors, the claret and the oysters, the curling papers, fat clergy in the cloisters, heavy squires hunting, pints of port and porter, grumbling and grunting, gothic bricks and mortar, fog in the dockyards, the quorum at the palace, blood in the stockyards, murder in the alleys. Well, the last stanza has Queen Victoria in it, of course. She said, we are not amused when someone told an improper story in her presence. And uh, murder in the Alice is Jack the Ripper, I suppose. This next one, again, is, is a rhyming a rhyming one. I will come on at, at the end to a few that don't so much rhyme. And this, this is a very literary one indeed. It's called Christmas for the Boys. And it imagines that some enterprising toy manufacturer has made a whole series of working models of the English poets. And they work either by clockwork or by electronic means. And they're little sort of figures, I suppose. The, 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 we used to have in, in Britain, probably you have them too, things called um, Action Man. My son used to have a whole regiment of them, and they're little things that you can dress like uh, uh, US Marines or anything under the sun. Christmas for the boys. A clockwork skating Wordsworth on the ice. An automatic sermonizing dun. A brawling Marlowe shaking out the dice. A male but metaphysical Tom Gunn. Get them all now, the latest, greatest set of all the poets dry to sopping wet. A mad, ferocious, disappointed, swift, being beaten by a servant in the dark. Elliot going up to heaven in a lift. Shelley going overboard just for a lark. Although the tempo and the talent varies, now is the time to order the whole series. An electronic Milton, blind as a bat, a blood-spitting consumptive Keats, Tennyson calmly raising a tall hat, Swinburne being whipped in certain dark back streets, all working models correct from head to toe, but Shakespeare's extra, as you ought to know. I think I'll just quickly vary a, a, a little bit by reading two little short poems and uh, in fact three little haikus. They're, they're not really proper Japanese haikus because they're not about the seasons and so on. Um, but they have the five-syllable, seven-syllable, five-syllable form. The first haiku is called Locomota Ataxia. Four steps, a long halt. The old man has a poet's bad creative block. So that's the first one. North American haiku. Hail, tribes of outer alcoholia, the red-nosed and gout-foot Indians. 
Broken Ribbon haiku. Our cat is the greatest thing on four legs since Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. <laughs> well, we now come on to uh, something very much more serious. And th this is the whole business of writing poems that aren't much like other people's poems at all. And the first one is called Variations and Excerpts. It, it's an attempt to take a very well-known song called Barnacle Bill the Sailor, which I think uh, used to be sung by a man called Luther in the States in the 30s. Isn't that right? Or was he called Luther something? Perhaps I... Anyway, it, it's uh, terribly well-known, and it says, um, Who's that knocking at my door? Who's that knocking at my door? cried the fair young maiden. And he answers and says, It's only me from over the sea, said Barnacle Bill the Sailor. I'm old and rough and dirty and tough, and so on. I expect you know it. It, it went um, originally... Um, no, it came from Australia. It came from Australia, and it had... Um, instead of Barnacle Bill, it was far more, far, far more improper. And um, when, it, when it came from Australia, it got to England and it was bowdlerized. It was very unusual. You'd think it would be the other way around, knowing the Australians that I've known. But anyway... What I've done is to take these things that they say to each other in the song, and I've put them into different styles, because this poem is trying to prove to people that it actually is the words in a poem that matter. And it's not whether it's a poem about soap or chrysanthemums, but it's the way that it's done that is of very great importance. So, variations and excerpts, and I have to do uh, the girl's voice for the girl, naturally enough, and the Barnacle Bill voice for Barnacle Bill, which isn't so difficult for me because it's more in character. And um, this, this is a poem which has got terrific sort of uh, sexual overtones and undertones, and it really is obscene and indecent and improper, but by shouting it, I can sort of mitigate it a bit. Variations and excerpts. Who's that crepitating with his knuckle dusters on my portico? Who's the man aggressifying his digits on my door box? Who is the person terrifying the nightwood with his fistfuls? Cried the beauteous young virgin, called the youthful female winner of beauty prizes, enunciated the scarcely mature attractive lady. It is only I from the mighty recesses of ocean cried William, the mightily testiculated mariner. At your service, my lady, from the scaly squadron's lair, intimated Guglielmo, the man of parts, the seafarer. Here I am after a rough crossing, said Willie, the well-endowed water wanderer. <laughs> I will descend then and admit you. I'll go below and allow you up. Tis I will sink that you may rise, cried the freshly formed, Teenage trollop lisped her lovely under twenty ladyship, opined the new slick chick. I am ancient and rugos and a stranger to the bath, and yet vigorous, yelled Will the well hung Matalo. Many summers have I seen, my skin is no longer smooth, nor is it sanitate, but I maintain my strength, cracked Billy the ballsy bosun. No more am I youthful, my manners are crude, I am not well washed, 
but I am nevertheless full of energy, explained Guillaume, the big, bold waterman. Well, that's very rough, of course, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a way of writing poems. And the next way that I'm going to burden you with it is uh, using stuff called semantic poetry, which was invented by um, a Polish writer called Stefan Femerson. And roughly what he did was to take well-known uh, works, ballads and things, and he used dictionary definitions instead of the actual words that occur in, in the poem. So that if he took, we have a, a kind of nursery rhyme in Britain which is very derogatory of Welshmen, and it says Taffy was a Welshman, Taffy was a thief, Taffy came to my house and stole a leg of beef. Well, Thomason wrote this in semantic again, and it goes something like this. Taffy was a native of Cambria who uh, made his way to the um, construction made of bricks with four windows and uh, two doors and uh, surrounded by a garden which belonged to me, etc. So he did it all in extreme detail. So what I've done here is to take a limerick a very well-known limerick in Cambridge, my university. And uh, I don't tell you what the limerick is, but I give you two versions. One is according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the shorter Oxford English Dictionary of 1933, which I have at home. And the other one is according to Dr. Johnson's Dictionary, the, I think it's the fifth edition of 1765. It was first published in 1755. 55, 10 years earlier. And this is a huge, great thing. It's like that and like that and two, two of it, two volumes. So I've um, made my versions by just translating the limerick, which of course is very colloquial, into this highfalutin language. And again, this shows you what language does. It alters it absolutely completely. And unless you knew the, the original, you might even not know what it was trying to say. The semantic limerick, according to the shorter Oxford English Dictionary, 1933. There existed an adult male person who had lived a relatively short time, belonging or pertaining to St. John's. And then there's a footnote that says, a college of Cambridge University because there is a St. John's College at Oxford, but the limerick wouldn't work if it was that particular one, who desired to commit sodomy with the large web-footed swimming birds of the genus Cygnus or subfamily Cygninae of the family Anatidae, characterized by a long and gracefully curved neck and a majestic motion when swimming. So he moved into the presence of the person employed to carry burdens, who declared, hold or possess as something at your disposal my female child. The large web-footed swimming birds of the genus Cygnus, or subfamily Cygninae, of the family Anatidae, characterized by a long and gracefully curved neck and a majestic motion when swimming, are set apart, specially retained, for the head fellows and tutors of the college. Now, the second one is the Dr. Johnson version, 
And here I've, I've played rather a dirty trick on him because, uh, as you know, 18th century books have some of the uh, S's written like F's uh, when they occur in the middle of a word. And so I've, I've used F's because it gives it a sort of old-fashioned feeling. The semantic limerick, according to Dr. Johnson's dictionary, edition of 1765. There existed a person, not a woman or a boy, being in the first part of life, not old, of St. John's, and then there's the same footnote, a college of Cambridge University, who withhead to, and then there's a blank, because the word isn't in the dictionary, the large waterfowl, that have a long and very straight neck, and are very white, excepting when they are young, their legs and feet being black, as are their bills, which are like that of a goof, <laughs> but something rounder, and a little hooked at the lower ends, the two fives below their eyes being black and fahining like ebony. In consequence of this, he moved, fatep by fatep, to the one that had charge of the gate, who pronounced, Profess and enjoy my female offspring, the large waterfowl that have a long and very straight neck and are very white, excepting when they are young, their legs and feet being black, as are their bills, which are like that of a goof, but something rounder, and a little hooked at the lower ends, the two fides below their eyes being black and fahining like ebony, are kept in tor, laid up for a future time, for the fake of the gentlemen with Spanish titles. Thank you very much. The other couple of lines from the poet, I think, that both our readers admire. He 
reporter, uh, two lines from a poem that say, perhaps you should say something a bit more interesting than what you mean. Uh, it's that kind of added interest uh, in a poem of Craig Grange that makes him so uh, delightful and, and brilliant. I thought I might slightly turn tables on Sandy. Um, I mean, actually, my poems are, are, are sort of known for their imagery, and I thought I'd read you a poem which has hardly any imagery in it at all. When Sandy introduced me in the f for the first half of this reading, he mentioned that my father um, is a, a spiritualist, and my mom is actually a Catholic. It's a kind of odd household to be brought up in. Um, and I think about six months ago, somebody asked me to write an, um, a prose autobiographical piece for a paper. And I started um, and remembered things. And actually, it really turned into a poem, so I never wrote the, the rest of it. Um, this is an account, it, it's, it, it's completely true, of um, um, a man coming to see my father. And my father read his tea leaves um, and actually went into control. I mean, that means to say was in a trance. Now, I saw this because um, I suppose I would have been about six. Um, and I, I had this um, rather embarrassing habit of whenever I went to the lavatory at that age, I took off all my clothes, not just my trousers. So I was completely naked. I didn't put them back on again. And I used to wander around the house. And if we had visitors, I used to hide behind the sofa. So I was trapped. This is a behind-the-sofa poem. Um, quite short. It's called Plain Song. There was the chiropodist, whose wife had a tapeworm or a fallopian cyst. And there was my father, reading his tea leaves. I was hidden behind the sofa and could only see a turnip and one oxblood Saxon loafer. I'd taken all my clothes off for the lavatory hours before. And now Mr. Campbell had come. My mother shut the kitchen door firmly like a good Catholic, snubbing the two spiritualists. I imagined the best china in my father's massive fists, a woman in hoops and crinoline, the dainty rustic handle, the typhoo hieroglyphics, the fate of Mrs. Campbell, whom mother felt so sorry for, my father went into control, and I listened out of sight to the jumbled rigmarole. Someone was passing over to another world of love. Why do I only now discover the woman's thin voice saying she will be missed? My father's eyes rolled back, and Mr. Campbell's unhappy mouth, open like a bad ventriloquist. Well, having read about my, my father's religion, um, I'll perhaps read one about my mother's. Um, I was brought up as a Catholic, um, and those of you who are Catholics will know that when you go into the church, you cross yourself with the holy water. Um, if two of you are doing this together fast, because we were always late for church, you look like a pair of Italians having an argument. Now, I, I, I really begin the poem with this. It's about going to, going to church with my mother. Um, 
and in, in a way, it's, it's, it's not just a funny image. It describes the sort of struggle I had with my mother about religion. I mean, um, I'm never particularly religious. Um, it's called Listen with Mother, which is a, a, a children's program um, in England um, for kids. We pecked at the shallow, tide-marked marble and sketched across like Italians arguing. Sixpence safe in my glove, a clean handkerchief, and the sacred heart spiky as a cactus on the front of my missile. I tiptoed and genuflected like a little Quasimodo, crippled by embarrassment, late again. The snore of Latin the radiator's vertebrae, an altar boy's baseball boots under his cassock. It all comes back, vivid and meaningless. I never liked God, but struggled with him, like algebra and trigonometry, relieved to get outside under a pointeist sky and let the snowflake sacrament melt on my outstretched tongue. But my mother clasped her naked hands like Adam and Eve, puffy with weeping, and her rosary draped its tactful vine. I thought I might try another invented language poem out on you. Um, this is called The Fear of Classical Music. Um, and the idea for the poem came to me when Brezhnev died, um, and I heard an item on the BBC service saying that um, the 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 base um, that the hockey match had been cancelled um, on Moscow radio, and they were playing classical music. And I, I, it, I what I thought was that this is of course what always happens um, in in volatile um, politics. Um, as soon as there is a coup, everything stops, and you get classical music. Um, and it's, uh, it, the other bit that um, sort of has bearing on this poem is, is um, I happen to know a Cambodian um, who um, talks about the Khmer Rouge a lot. Um, he now lives in England. And... Um, if you, if you spoke French or you had a wristwatch, they killed you um, because you were bourgeois. Um, and I, I use th this idea of um, um, bourgeoisification being, being a sort of absolutely deadly thing. It's not said in Cambodia. I mean, it, 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 it's not really said anywhere. But it's written, as it were, by a foreigner, the fear of classical music. His name is called Terror, and always he begin like this. The boxing match is killed. Leave to make jokes is cancelled. Instead, the radio sings Sibelius. A cabbage white? And I feel hunger also, too. I take a banana's coat off 
and proffer pieces to my wife, which shakes its head. It is weeping tears. In a small time now, I will be found guilty, caught with possession of pianists' hands, who cannot be buried. I withdraw to the house and switch the radio off. Um, this is um, a poem called Wolf and Aird Watcher, um, which is a, an Anglo-Saxon poem, which I decided to translate. Um, I haven't read it for 20 years, I don't think. Um, I, I, I read it when I was an undergraduate. I thought it would be interesting to translate something um, that you hadn't read for ages. Um, so you remember, as it were, the broad lines of the poem. Um, and after I'd finished it, um, I then checked it against the original. It's not, not much like it. <laughs> um, the, the situation in, in this poem is, is, is of um, a man and a woman um, who have been separated um, because their tribes are different. Um, and the man promises to come back for the woman. And the woman says she will be faithful to the man and she will wait for him, and she isn't. Um, um, I mean, as it were, her kind of biology cannot resist someone else whom she doesn't, in fact, like. Um, and or, or that sort of general situation is more or less true to the, the Anglo-Saxon. Oh, I, I ought to explain this, the phrase, um, wiped his face. Um, Chinese people um, in England use this expression to mean that you rob somebody out, I mean, you kill them, um, we'll wipe his face, um, destroy his identity, and I play with this. Wolf and Ed Watcher. They would have wiped his face, sorry, I ought to explain the woman is speaking. They would have wiped his face, as it is wiped now in any case, the shape of his lips, his tongue, and the touch of it are wrong. Nothing was said, ever, just stares. Now I remember only the hairs on the back of his slim hands, holding mine at the edge of our lands when we said that goodbye. So vivid they seemed, so black. I could not look him in the eyes. When he promised to come back for me after winter in the dark, I knew that I could wait forever, ill with every dog's bark, each splash from the river. I do not want him to return now. I could never explain how the other one I do not love came every day and would not move. A soldier. Nothing was said. He watched me and the unmade bed, his fist frigging the dice all day. I missed you, is so easy to say. This is a slightly somber poem called In the Mortuary. Um, God knows where you get ideas for poems from. Um, I suddenly thought one day, why didn't I write a poem about the morgue? Um, And I rang up my sister-in-law, um, who's a doctor, and um, 
I said, when you were a housewoman, um, what was the morgue like? And she said, actually, you know, I just can't remember anything about it. Um, why don't you talk to our au pair's husband, who's a policeman and works in the morgue? Um, and what he did was he took me in um, the next day. Um, and this is the poem I wrote. I, in a way, I, I expected to be moved. And when I got there, I was slightly ashamed of the sort of, as it were, the journalist in me um, who'd sort of gone looking for copy. Um, um, and I was moved, um, but I sort of displaced it um, and gave it over to someone else, as it were, in the mortuary. Like soft cheeses, they bulge sideways on the marble slabs, helpless, waiting to be washed. Cotton wool clings in wisps to the orderly's tongs, its creaking purpose done. He calls the woman Mrs. An abacus of perspiration on his brow, despite the cold. And she is the usual woman. Two terracotta nipples, like patches from a cycle kit. Puzzled knees, finely crumpled skin around the eyes and her stomach like a watermark held up to the light. Distinguishing marks, none. Color of eyes, closed. Somewhere inside an envelope, inside a drawer, her spectacles. Somewhere else, not here, someone knows her hair is parted wrongly and cares about these cobwebs in the corners of her body. Um, I'll finish with a, a poem called In the Kalahari Desert. Um, this poem has two sources, one of which is a, a missionary society pamphlet published in about 1880. Um, called Isabella Price Pioneer. Um, and the reason I came across this is that Isabella Price is an ancestor of my wife's. And my wife has constantly honored me to read this thing. She said it's terrific and you, you, you write a good poem about it. Um, and I'm terribly counter-suggestible. Um, so I, for three years I didn't. Um, and then one evening I couldn't sleep and I read it and it was absolutely terrific. And I did what you always do with poems. I mean, um, with, with source material, I was very free with it and I truncated it and shortened it and added things and um, um, kept some things. Um, but basically the story here is true. The other source for this poem um, is a, um, a news program on the BBC radio, um, um, which is at five o'clock and has little items as well as the main news, and they interview people. And they interviewed a, uh, an English comedian on his 70th birthday, a man called Arthur Askey. He's more or less like Jack Benny. Um, and. Um, he was talking about being brought up in Liverpool, which is a, um, a town in England, um, by his aunt and uncle. Evidently, his parents must have died. And he said every day at 4.30, they had an absolutely rigid routine. The Liverpool Post um, came through the letterbox. The uncle picked it up and started to read it. Auntie started to make the tea. And while he was reading, every time he got to a word he didn't understand or couldn't pronounce, he simply said, Manchester. Um, I <laughs> As, as you might say, in Wisconsin or something. Um, 
Um, and when I started to write this, I, I wrote it down just so I thought it was bizarre. When I started to write the poem, the, the two ideas um, were, were sort of magnetized to each other, and I, I, I couldn't keep one away from the other. And in fact, the, the, the Manchester Arthur Askey bit is, is um, easily as important as the other structurally. Um, in the Kalahari Desert. The sun rose like a tarnished looking glass to catch the sun and flash his hot message at the missionaries below, Isabella and the Reverend Roger Price and the Helmores with a broken axle left two days behind at Fever Ponds. The wilderness was full of home. A glinting beetle on its back struggled like an orchestra with Beethoven. The Halle, Isabella thought and hummed. Makalolo, their Zulu guide, puzzled out the Bible, replacing words he didn't know with Manchester. Spikenard, Alabaster, Leviticus were Manchester and Manchester. His head reminded Mrs. Price of her old pomanda stuck with clothes, forgotten in some pungent tall boy. The dogs drank under the wagon with a faraway clip-clopping sound, and Roger spat into the fire, leaned back and watched his phlegm like a Welsh rarebit bubbling on the brands. When baby died, they sewed her in a scrap of carpet and prayed, with milk still darkening Isabella's grubby button through. Makalolo was sick next day, and still the Helmores didn't come. The outspanned oxen moved away at night in search of water, were caught and goaded on to Matabele waterhole. Nothing but a dark stain on the sand. Makalolo drank vinegar and died. Back they turned for fever ponds and found the Helmores on the way. Until they got within a hundred yards, the vultures bobbed and trampolined around the bodies, then swirled a mile above their heads like scalded tea leaves. The prices buried everything, all the tattered clothes and flesh. Mrs. Helmore's bright chains of hair were wrapped in bits of calico, then given to the sliding sand. In the beginning was the word. Roger read from Helmore's Bible found open at St. John. Isabella moved her lips. The word was Manchester. Shh, shh, the shovel said. being here. Can you hear me? Today, we'll be back in this space on Monday.
at 12.10 and again at 1.10. And um, the four visiting poets, Donnie Apsey, Patricia Beer, Gavin Ewart, and Craig Rain, will be here reading from the works of contemporary British poets. So we'll see you then. What poetry are you going to read? I'm going to read Muldoon and Pullman. Uh-huh. Yeah. Who are you going to read? I should be reading Joseph Hunter and John Fuller and Sir Larkin. Yeah. And who are the other ones reading? I'm going to try to get to that. Um, that's, in the, that's the one in the daytime. <laughs>